there really are things that we can do about it when we join forces together and we can make a really meaningful, powerful difference on the earth today and also for future generations. And when we feel empowered that we're doing something, not to hold up a shield or not to drink the water from our faucet or to have a, you know, a bulletproof whatever, but we're actually preventing the harm from being able to happen in the first place. I think it creates an incredible strength within our minds, within our bodies, within our hearts and our souls that we have the fortitude to continue to go on. And it's no longer as frightening because we know that we're part of the solution, not part of the problem. And we're not ignoring it. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi. Every week, I invite you to care more so we can learn, grow, and create that better world together. Today, I'm thrilled to get back to the topic of climate activism with someone who has made protecting our home planet her life's work, Maya K. Van Rossum. Maya is the founder of Green Amendments for the Generations, a grassroots nonprofit inspiring constitutional recognition and protection of environmental rights in every state and ultimately at the federal level. She is also the Delaware Riverkeeper, leading the four-state watershed-based advocacy organization, the Delaware Riverkeeper Network, for 30 years. Since launching her National Green Amendment movement, New York passed a Green Amendment in 2021, with proposals advancing in 12 additional states. Maya authored the book, The Green Amendment, The People's Fight for a Clean, Safe, and Healthy Environment, which has its second edition coming out November 1st, 2022. I'm holding it up right here for all of you. It's an incredible work. And I've had the pleasure of spending some time now with this advanced reader copy. So with that, I want to go ahead and introduce you to the amazing, the lovely Maya K. Van Rossum. Now there's a name to remember. Maya, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. With an introduction like that, I feel like I should just walk away so I don't mess it up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're here to have a conversation. So as we commence that, I want to invite you to tell your story specifically about why we should care more about seeking to champion this idea of a green amendment. I'd love for you to share how you came to this idea and even the green amendment epiphany that you describe in chapter one of this work. Well, so throughout the entirety of our lives, right, we all learn about these powerful fundamental rights that we have protected in the Bill of Rights section of our constitutions, the right to free speech and freedom of religion, civil rights, property rights, even the right to bear arms. And we have also, as we've learned about those rights and seen things in action in the world, we have come to realize and recognize that those fundamental rights that are in the Bill of Rights section of our constitution really get powerful protection by our government officials whenever they take action. I mean, just think of the right to bear arms, right? (laughs) Exactly. I mean, most recently, I mean, we see how the right to bear arms, because it's explicitly written in the Constitution, the Supreme Court has used that language to actually strip away protections from people who are being harmed by those Mm -hmm. guns. Children, you know, in schools and families at the grocers or walking or watching, enjoying a parade. But 
the right to bear arms is deemed to have higher entitlement than the right of people to be safe in school or in public because it is written in the Bill of Rights section of the Constitution. I don't think that's an appropriate interpretation, mind you, but that's how it plays out. And on the converse, we've also seen how the right to bodily autonomy has been undermined and stripped away, even though for many, many years people believe that that was a constitutional right. But because it's not explicitly talked about in the Constitution, the court, when it deemed that it wanted to, the U.S. Supreme Court was able to take away, literally take away those rights. So just from those two recent examples, we can see how powerful explicit constitutional protection is for a fundamental right. And sort of at the same time, you know, we often hear in the news, or if you're an environmentalist and you've been to a rally or you've gone to a press conference, you hear people talk about how we have a right to clean water, we have a right to clean air. And that is a really powerful statement, which really raises people up, right, and gets their emotions going and they rah, rah, yes, we do. But the truth is here in the United States of America, no, we don't. And we right. don't actually have those rights because we can't enforce them. They're nowhere in the Bill of Rights section of the Constitution. So when they are infringed upon through the actions and activities that government allows to happen, there's not much that people can do about it because we think of Flint, Michigan. It's exactly the same thing. Exactly. When there is a misuse of authority by government in a way that allows themselves or others to contaminate our water, our air, destabilize our climate, decimate ecosystems that are essential for our healthy lives, because we don't have constitutional recognition and protection, we're all sort of left to the mercy of the legal system and the political system that allowed that to happen. And there's not really much people can do about it, except protests, which is powerful. Protest is powerful and voting is powerful. But when you're in that moment that something has happened, protests and votes often can't carry the day and give us the protections that we need. But if we have a constitutional right, we can use that to avoid those devastating outcomes and also to challenge them, often with great success, if we do actually have that constitutional protection. So let's talk about this from the perspective of some positive news that has come out in the past few weeks. The passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, which gives $359 billion to support green energy and green economies of scale in the United States. So why isn't this enough and how is it different than a passage of a green amendment? So things like the IRA are really about investment. You know, how is government going to use its dollars or use its authority to encourage good stuff and discourage bad stuff? Although the IRA does have a lot of gimmies for the fossil fuel industry, which is sort of counterintuitive when at the same time they have so much for clean energy and also for environmental justice. But that being said, it really is about getting government to use their power and authority to encourage good things. Whereas a green amendment is about people having a right that when it is infringed upon, they can take action. The other thing is, you know, so we think about the IRA, about that, again, about that being better investment to encourage good things. But on the flip side, when we look at our environmental protection laws at the state level, at the federal level, well, we have a lot of laws across our nation, laws that are focused on managing the who, the when, the where, environmental pollution and degradation is going to be allowed to happen. Fundamentally, at its core, 
our system of environmental laws is actually not about preventing pollution, degradation, and harm to our environment. It's actually about accepting it, legalizing it, and managing it through those reviews and those permits. And that's part of the problem. Pollution and degradation is accepted as a foregone conclusion. And so that's where our government officials start with this idea that, well, we just have to decide what's going to be the right permit that we're going to give to legalize this pollution or degradation. It's also a system that fails to look at what is actually happening on the ground. It is a system and through a lot of the ways about how it operates and how it puts together, which I'm not going to go into because that's more for a law school class, but the reality is we can see what's happening on the ground. Under this current system of laws, environmental racism is very real. We have communities of color and indigenous communities and low-income communities that are disproportionately impacted by environmental pollution and degradation. And we also have just communities across our nation that are drinking contaminated water and breathing polluted air. We are facing a climate crisis. We have so many species on the brink of extinction. We're losing critical ecosystems like wetlands and forests that are essential to every aspect of our lives are being cut down or filled in or contaminated left, right, and center across the United States of America. And all of that is happening because of how this current system of laws is focused on legalizing and again, managing the degradation it allows to happen, not preventing it. But because all of those things are happening under the auspices of these laws that are in place and that allow them to happen, when people are suffering from pollution and degradation, they're kind of stuck because the law and the political system said it was okay. And there is no backstop. There is nowhere for people to turn except to, as I noted earlier, perhaps trying to elect better people to the office. There are a lot of things that are not regulated. What we call emerging contaminants often are not regulated. A lot of people on your show might have heard about PFAS contamination per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, right? This is a man-made family of chemicals that are on Teflon or in stain-resistant clothing or carpeting. It's part of the firefighting foam that the military uses and often uses it to put out fires and even practicing putting off, out fires on their bases and out in the world. And they have a long life. They end up in our water tables, right? Exactly. They have a very long life. They end up in the water. Mm -hmm. They end up in groundwater. They end up in fish tissue. They're being found in deer meat. They're actually, they've been infecting cows and cow's milk. And so farmers have had to throw away millions and millions of gallons of milk and destroy their cows because they're contaminated with this toxic family of man-made chemicals. And those chemicals are contaminating drinking water supplies for hundreds of millions of people in, I think it's over 33 states at this point across our nation, as well as around the world. That Those contaminants got into the environment because of an absence of law and regulation. There was nothing to prevent it from happening under law and regulation. And so when those chemicals were used in a way that was so harmful, there again, there was nothing for people to do because there was no law to enforce. But when you have a constitutional right to clean water, to clean air, to a stable climate, to healthy environments, then in those situations when for whatever reason our system of laws and politics fails us and allows our environment to become so contaminated and so degraded that it is harming our health, harming our lives. 
we can then turn to that constitutional right to seek action from our government, to force action from our government officials to remedy the problem. And that's what's different. It provides a backstop. So we don't have to find every nook and cranny way that our pollution could be so degraded that it's going to harm us because we have this overarching protection of the constitution that we can turn to in all those places and spaces when our current system of laws and politics and governance fails us. Well, I think you've hit the drum quite resoundedly on a simple, relatively simple concept, right? Environmental rights should be human rights. They are human rights. And we haven't done a very good job of protecting them here in the States. I'm reminded also of a statement by the CEO of Nestle saying things like, oh, people in these other countries where they're seeking to capture their water and then bottle it and sell it to us, they don't have rights to those water, that the water is not guaranteed. It's not a public utility. It's available to whomever, I guess, can come in and steal it, so to speak, right? So these are the challenges that we face even here on our home turf, where there is this kind of extractive view of how we run our entire economic principles, and where also we are more likely to pave over our deserts to create, you know, sprawling cities like what you have in Phoenix, where it no longer cools off at night because there's just so much pavement everywhere. What we knew of the deserts growing up, what I always knew was that a desert would cool at night. It would get really cold, like even though it might have been very hot during the day, just because of how the weather works. But because we paved everything and because that pavement retains that heat for so long, then the desert doesn't operate the way the desert normally does. And so we are essentially changing our environment in ways that are irreparable and which do need some sort of protection. Now, you have stated that you essentially believe, and you're laying the case for that, I think, quite well in the book, that we come from this perspective of getting states to adopt these green amendments on a state-by-state basis until we hit this critical mass and can do something on a more national scale. You have successes in states like Pennsylvania. So I'd like for you to talk about that, what you've been able to accomplish thus far, given your background in law, being essentially a lawyer for the planet. Well, thank you very much. I'll take that title. <laughs> so the way the actually the Green Amendment movement came about and sort of how I came upon this epiphany that we needed to go down this pathway of constitutional protection for environmental rights was through my activism and my advocacy as the Delaware Riverkeeper, working day in and day out, as you said, for three decades now to advocate for the protection and the restoration of the Delaware River and its watershed. Now, in the course of that work, amongst the things that we have had to battle to protect our river and watershed from is from fracking, fracking mm. for fossil fuels from shale. And we actually have had tremendous success here in the Delaware River watershed. My organization, the Delaware Riverkeeper Network, really led the way to secure a moratorium early on that has now been turned into or is being turned into a ban that has prevented the fracking industry from being able to come into anywhere within the boundaries of the Delaware River watershed to wreak their havoc. The thing is, is that while we got protections within the boundaries of the watershed, we didn't through the mechanism that we were able to utilize for that protection. We weren't able to get protection for the portions of our watershed states that are outside of the watershed. 
One of those states is the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, where there was a lot of shale housing a lot of gas that the industry is seeking to frack. And so while we got protections within our watershed, outside of our watershed, the fracking industry was really going along at quite a clip, having its way with Pennsylvania's communities and natural resources. Now, in 2012, the Pennsylvania legislature, very pro-fracking legislature, decided that they wanted to help make it even easier for the fracking industry to devastate our environment, our climate, our communities for profits for the shale gas industry. And so they actually took a piece of legislation, which we later learned was actually written by the fracking industry leaders themselves, and they passed it into law. I mean, of course it was, right? Of course it was. <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, it, the thing is, is so often people think, well, that kind of thing doesn't really happen. No, yes, it does. And it's lobbyists are paid a lot here. of money to make sure that that happens. And you could see it, you know, in every line of this law, it's literally it was just like a Christmas gift basket mm -hmm. to the industry. And of course it was again, because they wrote it for themselves. In which the stock market then rewards that. I mean, that's the reality of the system we've built. Oh, this thing passed. Now all this prospecting for shale oil is going to go through the roof and futures for oil, all of those bets that we make that we're gambling with our future, it benefits those with money in it. And for sure. And then that becomes that self-fulfilling principle. More money goes in, more money goes in, more money goes in. Politics are affected. Yeah. And one of the interesting things about the fracking industry, and I think it's so great the way you framed it, because one of the truths about the fracking industry, while more and more money goes into it, often from government, we actually don't see a lot of money coming out. It is not actually an economically successful or sustainable operation. And one of the reasons why the frackers have been able to economically sustain themselves is because this constant infusion of government cash, capital. Yes. That's from right. our tax dollars. That's right. But they're not getting enough gas out or over in terms of volume and duration necessary to actually self-sustain their operations. And that's another whole, there are a lot of really great experts who really very powerfully make that case. And not only are people literally, you know, paying for their profits and their operations with cash, but we're also paying for it with our health and the quality of our lives and the property values of our homes and our businesses, all of which are being decimated by this industry. Well, and it's under the guise of a couple of different things, right? Like giving jobs to people in these economically depressed areas and also of this self-subsistence so that we don't have to rely on Mother Russia for oil and things along those lines, right? Yeah, those are exactly the arguments that are put forth by the industry and also the false arguments, because it's been proven time and time again that actually the fracking industry does not create sustainable jobs. It really is a boom bust cycle. They sort of come in and it looks like there's a lot of activity with the majority of the jobs going to people from outside the area who were sort of brought in to go along with the industry. And then when they're done their operations, things go away and the community is really left in a devastating economic condition as well as a physical condition. And increasingly more and more, much of that gas is actually intended for overseas markets. And not just today, you know, when where people are hearing about need for gas because of the Ukraine war, but that has been part of the life cycle of this industry. And so that's why you hear a lot more about liquefied natural gas facilities and pipelines and all of these things, all of this infrastructure being constructed to help the frackers get their gas to other nations where they actually can sell it for more than they can sell it for here in the United States. So it's not about energy independence. It's actually about total 
dependence because while we're busy taking this fracked gas and shipping it off overseas and are fracking, fracking, fracking for fossil fuels and staying dependent on that energy source, actually in other countries, they are advancing very quickly towards clean and renewable energy options, building those solar panels, developing that technology, developing that workforce. And so when the fossil fuels run out here in the United States of America, which is not too far off in the distance, we will now be dependent on those foreign nations for clean and renewable energy technology and materials. Yep. Because we've been left behind. Because we stayed with the fossil fuels. But so the dinosaurs. That's right. That's right. So this law was passed by the legislature. It was signed by the governor in 2012 and was called Act 13. And Act 13 did, like I said, a lot of bad things. But just by way of example, one of the things that Act 13 did was it preempted the authority of local governments to use their zoning to decide that, okay, if you're going to frack in our community, you're an industrial operation you need to frack where other industries are operating, but you can't come into the heart of our residential communities, for example. No, no, no. This law says, nope, local town councils, you no longer have that authority. Fracking Mm -hmm. has to be allowed to happen in every part of every community by virtue of this state law, including operating fracking well pads had to be allowed to be located as close as 300 feet from people's homes, from playgrounds, from hospitals, from schools. That's less than a football field. Can you Mm. imagine in your community where you live that suddenly less than a football field away up emerges this massive industrial operation to frack gas from shale with 24-7 noise, light, and pollution devastating your community, your quality of life, your peace of mind in your home, so much so that people can't even go out into their backyards for a party or to enjoy a quiet cup of coffee, they're like forced inside where even there, they're not protected from the devastations of this industry. That was one of the things it did. The law put in place automatic waivers from environmental protection standards that applied to every other industry. It said that the frackers, if they had contaminated private drinking water wells, right, that were servicing people's homes, the frackers were no longer obligated to notify those people that their drinking water had become potentially contaminated by toxic fracking operations, the chemicals and the toxic pollution that comes from or had come from nearby fracking. So they would be, and it did more. So at the Delaware Riverkeeper Network and me as the Delaware Riverkeeper, right? We knew and know fracking anywhere is bad for all of us everywhere. And certainly having fracking within one of our watershed states was devastating. And we, as an organization that litigates, one of the few organizations that litigates, we knew we had to find a way to take on this law. But it was passed by the legislature. It was signed by the governor. So we were trying to figure out, like, how can we challenge this? How can we stop it from going into operation before, you know, any of this horrible stuff can even Before we have complete decimation of the environment in these local areas, close to people's homes, uprooting them, devaluing their properties, taking away their livelihoods and also their health. Exactly. This this is huge. It's because once that law starts being implemented, once those things start happening, you're not going to be able to roll them back. So we had to stop it before it started. And I'm just having the chills. Like they haven't stopped since you started telling the story of like, I've got goosebumps all over my arms. I mean, it really was scary stuff. And so did everybody in Pennsylvania. And of course, fracking is still happening in Pennsylvania, but this was going to allow for the exponential expansion of it, right? And people who, 
you know, again, coming right into the heart of communities in so many well, ways. And those communities likely didn't have the mineral and oil rights to the land right underneath their homes either, right? Did they? Well, that's part of the problem too. In, in Pennsylvania, they have what they call a split estate. So unbeknownst to many people, while you might own the surface of the land in your home, actually somebody else, often the oil and gas industry, actually owns the subsurface mineral rights, and they are entitled by law to access them. So what does that mean? If you have gas under your property, under your home, they drill in from the side, right? They are entitled to come onto your property to drill down to access their entitlement. Wow. So people have actually, you know, you want to say no, but you can't say no because they have a level of right to access their property, which happens to be below your property. So you so. could theoretically have an oil rig right in your yard. Yes. Even though you didn't want it there. And, you know, I have stories in the book of people who have really have experienced the harms of the fracking industry. Sometimes what will happen too is you might be fine on your property and have said no and have all the legal ability to say no, but your neighbor, well, they didn't say no, and they leased their property to the frackers. And guess where the fracker decides to put their well? Right on the edge of the property line where your house sits, not where your neighbor's house sits. And that's part of the deal that they struck with the frackers when they leased their properties. I mean, there's so many ways that this plays out with such devastating consequences. But for Act 13, right, all of this was going to get even worse. So when we were developing our legal strategy, one of the things we realized and recognized was that actually in the Bill of Rights section of the Pennsylvania Constitution, there was language in the Bill of Rights section that said that the people of Pennsylvania had a right to pure water, clean air, and a healthy environment. And mm -hmm. that the Pennsylvania government was constitutionally bound to protect the natural resources of the state for both present and future generations. And now this was a language that had been added to the Constitution in the early 70s. But very, very quickly, the Pennsylvania courts had declared it to be just a statement of policy. And under the law, what that really means is that it was good advice, right? Policy under the law is basically good advice. And as we all know, with advice in our personal lives, you can take it or you can leave it. And the Pennsylvania legislators decided that they would leave it. And so for 42 years, we had this great language in the Pennsylvania Constitution but nothing had changed legally when it came to environmental rights and environmental protections. And that was because some people made some really stupid choices in the early cases that they brought to try to use this constitutional language. So we had this bad precedent for 42 years, but we felt like I, my organization felt like act 13 was such an egregious overreach by the industry and by the Pennsylvania legislators that maybe we could get the court to see that that 42 years of precedent was bad and that it needed to be overturned. And so we actually challenged Act 13 with one of our key arguments being that it would violate the Environmental Rights Amendment of the Pennsylvania Constitution. And we actually had seven municipalities join us in that litigation. That case went all the way up to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, a very conservative Supreme Court led by a very conservative chief justice. And in December of 2013, we got an amazing victory with the majority opinion actually written by that chief justice 
And amongst the things he said was that the provisions of Act 13 that we were challenging were in fact unconstitutional because they would violate the environmental rights of the people of Pennsylvania. And so in one fell swoop, we got declared, we stripped of strength all those provisions of Act 13 because they were now declared to be unconstitutional. But at the same time, we breathed legal life into that long ignored environmental rights amendment. So now suddenly the people of Pennsylvania actually had a living, breathing, thriving right to pure water, clean air, and healthy environment. It was amazing, an amazing victory. Well, to this point, though, even though it was constitutionally protected, it was ignored. And so, so much of this is really what are the courts willing to do today? What is the will of the people today? And how much power do these individual people? And also, where's the money? And ultimately, so often, I think we just end up caving to what the power authority in any particular area wants. So how, as a people, do we keep these sorts of green amendments that are passed, that are a part of constitutions, to really stay in that central frame without losing their power and their ability to shape our futures? So the important thing is that we, first off, we have to be smart ourselves. So when we are successful in getting constitutional environmental rights amendments added to our constitution, and at this point, there are only three states that have it. There's Pennsylvania and Montana. And as you said, we secured one in New York. There are a lot of other states that talk about the environment, even environmental rights in their constitutions, but they don't raise up environmental rights to that same highest constitutional standing as those other fundamental rights we hold dear, like speech and religion, et cetera. So that's one of the epiphanies I sort of had after our victory. I looked at all the constitutions and in the wake of this powerful victory and made that determination that at that time only Montana had this highest constitutional right and that it was essential that we change that because if we didn't have this constitutional language, we wouldn't have had the constitutional hook we needed to defeat that law. Now that is not to say, as you indicated and as we experienced in Pennsylvania, that's not to say that it is an instant panacea and that we can always count on it. But if you have language in the Constitution, then even when our government officials get it wrong, even when the courts get it wrong, we can always come back time and time and time again until they get it right. And we have seen that strategy, right, in the gun rights movement. Now, they have just pummeled the political system and the judicial system until they finally brought it around to the kind of place where they wanted to be, where they really were stripping people away from critical protections. So just having that language in the Constitution, as much as people in government or judicial officials might want to ignore it, might want to not give it legal authority and power, it is very, very difficult for them to do that. It is very difficult to justify ignoring constitutional language. And if a judicial body ignores it once, again, because of the strength of the language and the placement, we always have the ability to come back as people and make them get it right. And I really believe with our Green Amendment movement going state by state by state by state with the power and importance of giving constitutional protection and recognition to environmental rights, what we are doing is actually preventing the ability of courts and governments to ignore the power of this language because we are now lifting up this concept writ large across our nation, lifting up the expectations of our people 
it's changing the conversation in terms of who we vote for and how we hold them accountable when they're in government. And the more states that we have passing constitutional green amendments and putting in place strong and powerful interpretations of that language, the more precedent we create that will prevent that backsliding, that misuse, that effort to ignore the environmental rights of the people. So I actually believe at this point with the powerful decisions that we got, not just in our Act 13 victory, but other decisions that have been secured since that time, as well as decisions in the state of Montana, we actually are now in a place where we have prevented the ability of our government officials to ignore constitutional environmental rights amendments when they fulfill the green amendment criteria that have all the elements essential to preventing government from being able to interpret that law in a way where they can negate it of its power. I mean, you just, the only way I can say to people, and it's sort of hard, is just think about, you have a right to free speech. You have an expectation of a right to free speech or freedom of religion. You know that if your government officials take action that really infringe upon that right, you have the ability to go into court and say that government action stripped from me directly or through the action of others, stripped from me my right to free speech. And you can hold them accountable. And we have 100 plus years, 200 years of precedent that prevent the courts from ignoring your constitutional right to free speech. We are putting in place that kind of precedent when it comes to environmental rights by using the right language and the right placement in the passage of green amendments. And so we really are preventing that kind of backsliding and ignorance, which I think is really powerful. It's like every time we go into a new state and we start this conversation, we are adding power and strength to the green amendments that we have and the green amendments that we're going to get. So as it stands right now, you have a few microsites for specific states so people can get more involved and more engaged with what you're doing. I think if I remember correctly, you have one for West Virginia, like wvgreenamendments.com or .org, and then one for Washington, New Mexico, Arizona, and I believe New York as well, where you already passed. But also people can go to forthegenerations.org, and then you have a, a listing of all the states where there's activity. So I know that there's, I think, I don't know, about 15 there. And we have work to do, like even in the state of California, right? we have work to do where the building regulations seem to be somewhat onerous if you're in the world of constructions, but where, you know, we have a lot of work to do. There's nothing, there's no amendment in our constitution to state that this is a human right. So what are the steps to get there? How would you entice people to get involved so that we can stay engaged and optimistic about our roles and the things that we can individually do and as a collective to help push forward and get this to a spot where it can become something that's penned in, inked in to our federal constitution. Yeah. So that is a really important point to make. And I'm going to hop to the end first, and then I'll go back to the beginning. So one of the things in order to get a federal green amendment, you have to have three quarters of the states vote in support. Right. And so in order to get that kind, to be able to get that vote count, we really have to do our work of going across our communities, across our nation, getting people to understand what a Green Amendment is, why it's important, why it makes a difference, how it makes a difference, even getting them to understand that they don't actually have a right to clean water and clean air and a stable climate because we don't have constitutional Green Amendments. Letting them understand why language that looks pretty in their state constitution today actually doesn't make a difference and how a Green Amendment 
does. So the thing is, is if we have to go across our nation in every state, getting people to understand this and appreciate this, while we're doing that work, we might as well go forth and get the passage of state green amendments. Because here in the United States, the states have a lot of power when it comes to the environment. The federal government has a lot of power too, but so do the states. And so we actually need green amendments at the state level and the federal level. And just good strategy says, look, constitutional amendments are more accessible at the state level. We're going to get a meaningful difference when we secure a state green amendment. So let's go forth state by state, educate people, engage people, get green amendments, prove that they make a difference. And all the while we'll be building the power base necessary to ultimately get to a federal green amendment. And we will reach a tipping point. It will be clear when we reach a tipping point. And then we're going to add that federal strategy to what we're actively working on. Now, if people do want to get engaged, so as you said, forthegenerations.org, www.forthegenerations.org is the main site. If you type in greenamendments.org, you get to the main site as well. And you can also get to all the individual states where there's key action and activity happening right now. Or if you are in a state where there's a green amendment advancing now, the way to find it, as you said, with those microsites, it's, it's really the state initials. So like for New Mexico, it would be NM greenamendments.org. So nmgreenamendments.org, njgreenamendments.org for New Jersey, degreenamendments.org for Delaware. That's sort of the pattern. And then we have state-specific information and engagement opportunities that way. Now, every state, the Green Amendment language that's advancing, it's not cookie cutter because every state is unique. The people are unique. Their goals are unique. Their environmental challenges are unique. So when I go into work with a state, that wants to advance a green amendment, one of our starting places is what's the right language? And I talk about the key criteria and I share model language and ideas, but we really work together with the, their, our state partners to figure out what's the right language for that state so people can really own it because it's the people of the state that's gonna make a green amendment happen. It's not gonna be me. I just wanna be one of the partners at the table. Now, in every state where we have a Green Amendment advancing, not only is the language unique, not only is the strategy that's implemented to advance the effort to get a Green Amendment unique, because again, every state's different, but the way the movement got started is different. Sometimes it was a person who heard me on a radio show or heard me on a podcast or read the book and said, I think that's really cool. And they literally picked up the phone and they called me. And I care so deeply about this movement that I pick up the phone and answer it. And we begin there, we begin a conversation to figure out how to make it happen in their state. What are the right partners to reach out to? How do we build that power base? Sometimes it's been an organization, an environmental organization that reached out, not the national ones, usually it's the smaller ones where you've got really great grassroots activism, frontline communities, right? Working on environmental justice issues. And sometimes it's a progressive legislator that heard me speak at an event like at the National Caucus of Environmental Legislators. And they said, hey, I want to do this in my state. And they reached out and we started to work together on the language and then work on the grassroots activism. So the truth is for this Green Amendment movement, anybody can make it start. Yeah. I want to point out an example. I had an individual reach out to me who is a thought leader in the coaching space who helps businesses work through these concepts of Enneagram, like personality types, right? But he's specifically using the framework 
for climate activism. And he reached out. I'm a little skeptical of a lot of those, you know, management tools. So I'm just like, well, what is, how are you really working to come on the show? What are we going to talk about? Turns out that he is involved every Friday in this Fridays for the Future meeting in Palo Alto, connecting with other people that are working to push change through legislation, that he goes to every, the city council meeting in Palo Alto every Monday and utilizes his three minutes to lobby his local chamber and essentially tell them the things that are wrong and that we should be approaching. And I'm like, okay, this person is really engaged in his local community in a way I have yet to make time for myself. So I'm now choosing to piggyback. I'm saying, okay, I want to learn from this individual and I'm going to go and be present for his Fridays for the future starting September 9th because that's my next Friday that I have available and then work to engage and see what's working there because I can then take some of those strategies and implement them in my backyard if I want to, but I'm learning from someone who's already doing it. And I think that's the beauty of what you're talking about here because you've already been through those rigors for 30 years working with this watershed and ultimately helping to get an amendment passed or recognized, an amendment recognized in the state of Pennsylvania so that it can have its power back. So this is kind of a prelude to what will be coming. I am going to likely begin doing many little episodes called Fridays for the Future that are going to dive into specific topics. And perhaps sometimes I will have you come back on so we can do that together and share some news with our community about the things that are going forward. Because my goal here is also to help inspire people to act. Ultimately, each of us has some power. And if we can remain optimistic and engaged, if we can see that these connections are actually building something meaningful, that you're advancing these forward. It's not just lip speak. You've got this site organized. You have California, Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, New Jersey. I mean, I'm just rattling off the ones I can remember that I saw in this list. So as part of my podcast show notes, what I want to do is actually create the list so it's in there so people can go and literally jump right to their state if they're in that area and say, okay, now I'm going to educate and engage. I'm going to get myself a little bit more knowledge so I can dive in and be a part of this. So I just want to thank you personally because you're inspiring me as we're going through this conversation. And I ultimately think this is, you're creating a wave that can be very powerful. And I'm just so impressed. So thank you for that. I also thank want to touch. You. That's so nice. I want to touch on something that you said earlier. Like you are sometimes a guest on podcasts to push these things through, like coming on my show. But you also host a podcast with your daughter. And I would like for you to talk about that for a moment. Oh, that's so nice. So my daughter is, she's 26 now. And <laughs> I am really honored that she wanted to follow in my footsteps and she wanted to be an environmental activist. And she, I think was, has appreciated, I mean, she's, since before she was born, she's gone with me on protests and advocacy. I have a picture of me being pregnant with a don't damn, you know, don't damn the Neshaminy, you know, <laughs> on my pregnant belly. And so, and she's testified and done things throughout the entirety of her life since she was a child. I mean, I think she saw the value of being an attorney. So she went to law school, she just graduated. And literally is following in my footsteps to be an environmental activist. And, you know, as we've talked about her work, my work, and the things that we care about, what we really came to realize is that the issues that she's concerned about now today as a young person are issues that I have been working on for 30 years. 
things having to do with the climate and contamination and species loss and activism and, you know, people not being given a voice when they're being harmed, environmental justice issues and more. And that she has a way that she talks about these things and I have a way that I talk about these things. So we decided to create a podcast as she describes it, a podcast that we talk about environmental issues through a generational lens. It's called Green Genes. And Jeans is G-E-N-E-S. Thought it was very clever. I didn't come up with it. She came up with a colleague. And yeah, we try to once a week just take on hot issues of the day and do it that way. Sort of get that young person's perspective and get that, I'm still a young person, get that person who's been doing advocacy for a long time perspective and, you know, see where they intersect, cross, how they're different. And often we, we both just... Sometimes there are issues like leading up to the IRA when we had Senator Manchin being, you know, so inappropriate about all of that. We both just join voices and rail on that bad thing or that bad person. So it's quite fun. And I enjoy it because I enjoy my daughter. Oh, that's lovely. And so I had the pleasure of watching one of your episodes in which you were talking about the gun violence issues that we're confronting. Reality is we don't have good solutions in hand. And I think even just voicing our challenges and giving thought into the open space and sharing that with the world can help other people get through these rough times as well. So if we can band together and act together and create change together, we will create that better future. And that's everything that this show is about. We invite people to care more so we can all be better. I've mostly stayed away from the gun violence topic because it's just so hard. It's so hard. It is mm -hmm. such a hard topic. And so many people are touched so personally by it. I mean, I don't want to cry on podcasts. So well, <laughs> the one of the reasons stay. one of the reasons why we did it was, you know, it really is an issue that's so striking because mm -hmm. it is not an issue that I've worked on throughout, you know, my career because or my life. Because when I was young, it was not a thing. We didn't not have, like it is here, yeah. Mm -hmm. Not like it is now with, you know, every other day yep. somebody going in and shooting up a school. So literally, not only are kids afraid to go to school, but I have moments. I have a 16-year-old as well. And I have a husband who's a high school teacher. And I often have moments of fear that and especially when a shooting happens. And yet she, as she has grown up, this has become more and more prevalent. And so this mm -hmm. is something that she actually grew up with when attending school. And so that was one of the reasons she said, Mom, well, I really think that we should talk about it because it is one of those things where we actually have entirely different life experiences, depending on when we were attending school. Yeah. And so I thought that was oh, interesting. Right. I mean, I recall one threat of a drive-by shooting at my high school when I was you know, this is like 20 some odd years ago in Cupertino. It's not like I'm living in an inner city area or anything like that. I mean, this is home of Apple computers and technology and all this stuff, right? But 25 plus years ago, we had a drill and that was very new then. Like it wasn't something that you typically heard of or saw. And the fact that there are active shooter drills, which is far different now at elementary schools is so disheartening. And it just shows that we have so far to come from a socially aware perspective to get to the point where we will accept that we should and always should protect the underdog. And I think there's something about our culture which essentially says each man for himself and doesn't think about the greater good 
as some endemic kind of societal pressure that we have as, you know, that First Amendment, Second Amendment right perspective. Well, that's one of the things I think that I appreciate so much about your show, because it really is not about people being all in it for themselves. It really is about talking about the different ways that people are acting together and or to serve one another. And And we can push for change together. And we can push for change. I will say on the gun thing, one of the most shocking things that I learned, and when I was young, we didn't have active shooter drills. That was also Mm -hmm. not a thing. Right. To learn that there are bulletproof backpacks that parents can buy for their children that they can use as a shield when going to school. I mean, how scary. And I talked with my son about it. And, you know, one of the interesting, and he was part of a gun violence event, and there was conversation with young people and adults. And I actually asked, somebody had raised that these things exist, and I had never heard about it. And I actually asked the question of the group of young people in the room and said, you know, is this something that you would want your parent to buy you? Like, I really wanted to know, like, is this something that I should be thinking about buying for my son? Because the parents were separated from the room where their children were. So my son was in another room. And this one very wise young person, I thought, you know, said something just very insightful. He said, no, actually, I wouldn't want that. Because if my parent bought me that, then every single day when I picked up my backpack to go to school, I would be reminded that I might get shot that day and that I might need to use my bulletproof backpack. And so it would just make me scared every day to go to school. And I thought, you know, how insightful and how wise that young person was to recognize that. So that's just something to share with people that it's sometimes it seems like, oh, you know, sure, we'll give them protection, but you have to remember also what it does to people's minds. And I think that pollution and contamination does that. People here, you know, our young people are hearing so much about the climate crisis. People are hearing so much about water contamination of all kinds. You know, learning that air pollution from vehicles going down the road don't just create asthma attacks and heart attacks, but they're the cause for some people of ADHD and Alzheimer's disease. That pollution can be so significant when nearby a school that it can actually prevent children from learning. And as people become aware of these things, it becomes frightening. And sometimes I think, you know, people want to turn off because they don't know what they can do about it. But as you demonstrate through your show, and as I hope the Green Amendment movement helps people to become a part of, there really are things that we can do about it when we join forces together. And we can make a really meaningful, powerful difference on the earth today and also for future generations. And when we feel empowered that we're doing something, not to hold up a shield or not to drink the water from our faucet or to have a, you know, a bulletproof whatever, but we're actually preventing the harm from being able to happen in the first place. I think it creates an incredible strength within our minds, within our bodies, within our hearts and our souls that we have the fortitude to continue to go on. And it's no longer as frightening because we know that we're part of the solution, not part of the problem. And we're not ignoring it. Which, of course, right. if you ignore it, then you're, you're also not, you know, protecting yourself, which is important. Right. Well, I just think that is a perfect note on which to kind of wrap up. But really, I want for people to take this meaning forward, that what we're talking about is that we as a people can be more powerful than the fracking companies, the oil companies. We as a people can be more powerful than the NRA. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union need to engage 
Because if we're disengaged, if we just say, oh my gosh, there's nothing I can do, then there really is nothing you can do. Like it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? So there is something that we can do together. It doesn't have to be super complicated. You can champion your own efforts and just going to your local city council meeting and letting your thoughts be known, picking up a book, emailing your congressperson. I mean, you write about in this book also the nexus of that is climate change. Paul Hawken has this entire site, regeneration.org, that educates people on the different aspects of climate change and how we can get involved. Gives details like the contact information for CEOs of multinational corporations that you could send an email to and tell them why you're displeased. I mean, we have the power in our grasps to make change happen. We just need to activate, right? Yep. We just need to activate. We need to get together and make a difference. And we need to remember, you know, and you talked about a more perfect union in terms of the constitution, we always have to remember that the constitution is the people's document. And the constitution is we, the people telling our government officials, we are giving you permission to govern over us. But we have some rules of the road. And amongst the rules of the road is that the rights that are in the Bill of Rights section of our Constitution, when we say to you, you have permission to govern over us, these rights we are holding unto ourselves and telling you that as you govern, you may not govern in a way that overreaches and infringes on these environmental rights that we, the people, have kept for ourselves. We're now adding to that the right to clean water, clean air, a stable climate, and healthy environments. So passing green amendments is very literally people taking our power back. And that is meaningful. And that's important. And I think that that's empowering and really does make a difference. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much for having this conversation with me today. Now, we've given this resource a few times throughout the show, but people can go to greenamendments.org or they can go to For, for the, the Generations. generations forthegenerations.org, because this is for the generations. That's what we're talking about here. So thank you so much. Do you have any closing thoughts you'd like to leave our audience with? No, I really just want to thank you for this opportunity. And I want to thank you for your show, because I think you're really making a difference in people's lives and in our world. So thank you. I look forward to coming back on those Fridays. Yeah, we got to do it. It's, you know, I keep being enticed to do something like that. That's just more kind of of the moment and newsworthy. And, you know, sometimes I've been doing it via live stream and just minimally editing those shows, but I think it's powerful and keeping people abreast of what's presently happening so they can get involved right now, as opposed to the weeks later that this episode might air. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me. To connect with Maya K. Van Rossum yourself and pre-order your copy of The Green Amendment, The People's Fight for a Clean and Healthy Environment in its second edition this November 1st, visit ForTheGenerations.org. It is critical that we keep this conversation going with small actions like sharing this podcast with your community or notes for your Congress people. Heck, write a few notes to them. There is hope after all, and we can all play a role in resolving our climate crisis, our environmental protection. We can play a role. I'll be sure to include links to Maya's important work for thegenerations.org, including direct links to all of the states and microsites that are listed among there, including places like New York, West Virginia, New Mexico, Arizona, Washington, and more. Just visit caremorebebetter.com. I hope you'll let me know what you thought of today's episode. You can leave me a voicemail by tapping the microphone icon in the bottom right-hand corner, 
or just send me an email note to hello at caremorebebetter.com. I'll be happy to answer any community questions you have for me or for Maya K. Van Rossum about her work. Thank you now and always for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more, we can be better, and we can even pass that nationwide Green Amendment federally. Let's go. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good. 